Um, I f uh, have to admit, I feel a little odd here moving from uh, signing books on 1930s gangster movies to then talking about modernism in Dulubak and Dunalu. Uh, what am I doing here? Uh, well, this, this paper and this project that's a part of a really, um, they're kind of the other side of the kind of intellectual history that I've been doing for most of my career, really looking at secular thought looking at secular thought in its own terms and trying to see what's missing, what, uh, how it can't fulfill its own aspirations, particularly aspirations to community and unity in the face of modern dislocation. So now I'm kind of looking at the positive side, really looking at Catholicism as, as that alternative, as that intellectual and cultural resource that can provide the unity that is missing in, uh, in the modern world. Um, I'll be talking about a Catholic view of history uh, as I read it from certain texts, but before I start, I do want to say that I was very moved by Professor Madden's comment. Uh, his, he was quoting a historian, I don't remember which one, this, but who said that you can't understand medieval people unless you have read the office, like, unless you've gone through the Psalms every day of your life. Uh, and I think the same goes for a Catholic view of history in the sense that it's not a theoretical undertaking. You can't understand a Catholic view of history simply by reading some texts. You have to do it by teaching. And one thing that I'm very thankful for is that here at Christendom, uh, I've had that opportunity to teach from a Catholic perspective really before I ever theorized about it. Uh, and just again wanted to thank, thank Christendom for that uh, opportunity. Uh, okay, and now the paper. In his 1938 work, Catholicism, the Jesuit theologian Henri de Lubac observed, we have learnt our catechism too much against Luther. For a long time after Luther's desecration of it, no one dared even to mention Christian liberty. In the first half of the 20th century, Catholic theologians set themselves less directly against the tenets of Lutheranism than against a broader theological heresy known as modernism. Condemned by Pius X in his 1907 encyclical letter, Vascendi Domenici Regis, modernism appeared as, quote unquote, the synthesis of all heresies by virtue of its reduction of dogmatic and biblical truth to mere products of historical and cultural circumstance. Now, de Lubac had no quarrel with the church's condemnation of modernism per se, but he did object to the way in which the fear of heresy seemed to restrict appreciation for the full range of Catholic truth. His book, Catholicism, in part reflects his sense that, in effect, we have learned our catechism too much against modernism and no longer dare even to mention history. Uh, something, again, that might come as a surprise to many here, since we've all just assumed there's a Catholic view of the history and no, no conflict between history and Catholicism, but things were different uh, earlier in the century. De Lubac was one of the leading lights of a, the generation of theologians whose work helped to revive the church's own traditions of historical and cultural dynamism, particularly those present in the early church fathers, as an antidote to the relativism implicit in theological modernism. Though these theologians had a profound influence on the Second Vatican Council and every pope since the council, including uh, our current Pope Francis, they are hardly household names uh, among educated Catholics. Uh, they've remained fairly marginal to mainstream academic 
Catholic theology as it's developed since the Council, and needless to say, among uh, Catholic historians, they remain virtually unknown. Today I'd like to look briefly at two of these theologians, uh, de Lubac and his fellow Jesuit Jean Deneloup, and consider how their theology of history might inform the project of a Catholic vision of history uh, to which our founder, Dr. Warren Carroll, devoted his life. Now, before looking at the thought of uh, de Lubac and Deneloup, I would like to take a brief look at the controversy surrounding modernism and consider how it influenced the church's attitude toward history in the half century or so prior to Vatican II. There may have been no unified school of modernism, but there was very clearly a significant number of theologians in the 19th and early 20th century who believed that in order for the church to engage the modern world, it had to speak and think in a modern idiom. The 19th century saw the rise of many modes of thinking, either indifferent or hostile to traditional Catholic thought, but perhaps no form of thought was more distinctive uh, and hostile uh, in the 19th century than that of history. Now, of course, at one level, there's always been history, right? If you look at the shelf of the great books, you'll see the Greeks, Herodotus, and Thucydides and such. Um, this tradition of a kind of history writing uh, carried over into the early church with uh, figures like Eusebius. Uh, medieval scholars such as St. Bede wrote chronicles that were in some sense history. But history in the 19th century was very different. Um, 19th century historians rejected uh, these earlier traditions as merely literary at best and mythical and fantastical at worst. History in the 19th century meant critical history, history that was objective, neutral, and scientific, often modeling itself on the natural sciences. Some aspired to history as a kind of physics, if you will. The historical sensibility of 19th century figures such as Karl Marx and Charles Darwin uh, still inspire controversy and give some sense of how radical this new way of thinking struck many in the 19th century. The church experienced uh, the challenge of history uh, less in debates over revolution or evolution than in the comparatively esoteric field of biblical studies. In the spirit of scientific history, Protestant scholars had begun uh, to take a much more critical uh, attitude toward the Bible. These scholars, that, uh, these scholars believed that when studying the Bible, the scientific scholar should set aside his faith in the Bible as the revealed word of God and approach it as a historian would approach any historical document. The study of variations among the earliest surviving manuscripts raised doubts about the conventional understanding of biblical authorship, while a growing knowledge of ancient pagan civilizations revealed a wide range of cultural borrowings that seemed to undermine the uniqueness of biblical revelation. Archaeological data called into question much biblical chronology, and of course discoveries in geology and biology called into question biblical accounts of the age and origin of the universe. Those scholars in what soon came to be known as the historical critical tradition of biblical studies often disagreed amongst themselves, and certainly still do today. They were in agreement that the conventional static understanding of biblical revelation had to give way to a much more dynamic developmental view of the Christian past, uh, which of course implied the need to take a similarly dynamic and developmental view of the Christian present and future. 
Now, truth to tell, outside of biblical studies, the historical method, excuse me, the historical critical method is simply the historical method. The profession that arose in the 19th century shared much of the assumptions of the new biblical scholarship. And outside of biblical studies, uh, the church actually showed an openness to appropriating these new methods. And as President O'Donnell mentioned uh, in, his, uh, in his talk this morning, uh, Pope Leo XIII, who most people know for his revival of uh, scholasticism, the study of, of Thomas, St. Thomas, also uh, promoted a kind of Catholic history. I mean, most famously, uh, Leo opened the Vatican archives to the Austrian Catholic historian Ludwig von Pastor so that he could write a modern objective history of the papacy, proclaiming that God does not want our lies, kind of echoing uh, Augustine, say that God doesn't want my lies. So Augustine tells the truth of his life and confessions. He said, God does not want our lies. So he encouraged pastor to write a, a warts and all history, no matter how embarrassing it might be. Still, one could acknowledge the sins of past popes while still affirming the authority of the papacy. The historical critical approach to the Bible threatened to undermine the authority of sacred scripture as the revealed word of God. Uh, the church viewed the spread of this approach into Catholic biblical studies with great suspicion. Biblical revelation and doctrines of the church were timeless truths not to be subject to the contingencies of history. Many church authorities continued to view now blessed John Henry Newman's notion of the development of doctrine as heretical. Again, we have to remember how controversial uh, Newman was and how controversial many of uh, these ideas and talk of history was at the time. And Newman remained suspect for some authorities, in part because so many Catholic practitioners of this historical critical method claimed Newman as a precursor, claimed him as a kind of an authority and a, that gave them a license to pursue this approach to the Bible. Um, the most notorious of these Catholic scholars was undoubtedly Alfred Loisie. Um, perhaps uh, more than any single work, his 1902, The Gospel and the Church, uh, spurred Pius X uh, to the condemnation of modernism in Pascendi. Loisie actually adopted historical, historical critical methods in an effort to refute Protestant scholarship that he felt undermined the church. Um, Loisie was going to refute these Protestants by demonstrating the historical development of many doctrines and institutions and drawing on Newman. Development was not such a bad thing for Loisie. Um, Loisie tried to argue that, again, the development did not undermine church teaching. That is, the idea of development didn't undermine church teaching. Uh, Newman, after all, um, had argued that the uh, teachings on papal authority, or the, the teaching uh, particularly on uh, the dual nature of Christ uh, pro proclaimed at Chalcedon, uh, this had a history. It appears at a certain time, it didn't appear before, it wasn't formulated before, this is development, but development doesn't undermine the doctrine. So Loisie's moving out of that, but there's one phrase that, uh, the phrase that really got Loisie into trouble was this. Uh, he famously declared in this book, Jesus foretold the kingdom and it was the church that came. Uh, what do you mean by that, son? Uh, uh, well, he actually didn't mean anything too bad. I mean, Lazi, you know, he, he goes off the rails later and, is, uh, and, and leaves the church. Uh, but 
as he made that statement, he did not intend it to be a kind of a debunking statement, but it certainly, to church authorities, seemed to be giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Uh, hmm, there's a, Jesus said something, but something else uh, uh, came instead. Now, uh, today, to say that the church of the 20th century was different from the church of the first century, I think would scandalize few Catholics. Uh, but in 1902, uh, such a statement uh, seemed the first step on the slippery slope toward relativism. Despite Leo XIII's patronage of Pasteur, the church responded to the challenge of history, at least in, the, uh, in figures like Loisy, primarily by promoting the disciplines of philosophy and theology as repositories of timeless truth. Thus, Leo XIII is known more for his uh, encouragement of the revival of Thomism than for his promotion of history. So in response to uh, historicism or the historical critical method where, uh, say, fundamentalist Protestants turned to a kind of biblical literalism, um, the church turned to philosophy and theology, again, particularly uh, the philosophy and theology of Thomas Aquinas as a timeless truth that could stand as an alternative to relativism. Um, they turned to Aquinas, but uh, not so much Aquinas himself, but a certain kind of Thomism uh, that developed in the early 20th century, uh, and even more, a certain presentation of that Thomism. That is, at least as it played out in many seminaries, a kind of reduction of Thomas uh, to a set of syllogisms that you would memorize like a child memorizes the Baltimore Catechism. So it wasn't just that there's a revival of Thomas, but a very particular kind that played out in a very particular way uh, that, let's just say, was not, uh, for many people at the time, so intellectually stimulating. And this may be uh, somewhat of an unkind caricature. Um, this is a very controversial issue. But uh, let's just say for the people that I'm dealing with, uh, this is not a caricature. Um, for them, they had nothing against Thomas per se, but for them, they would often write words to the effect of, Thomas would not recognize himself in what is being taught uh, in the seminaries in the early 20th century. Um, again, because so much of Thomas's thought is reduced to almost, you could say the equivalent today would be like bullet points. Okay, Summa, that's a big book. Uh, could you just reduce it to, you know, a few, like five bullet points, okay? What's he got to say there? I mean, you know, not that bad, but, you know, it's seminary education is a practical training. It's like, look, if you're going into the parishes, we don't need learned disquisitions on, you know, question 23 of book, you know, all this kind of stuff. Just, you know, people in the pews need the truth. Here's how Thomas will help you. Um, and, you know, that can be good, uh, but uh, if you're of a, a more kind of intellectual bent, this could be very stifling. Um, and frustrating for other reasons. Um, despite their errors, uh, the modernists at least acknowledged that the church needed to do something to engage the intellectual life of modernity. Um, you couldn't talk as if nothing had happened since the 13th century. Um, Condemning the secular world for refusing to accept pat syllogisms was hardly a sincere effort at evangelization. Uh, refusing to deal with change in a world that was rapidly changing guaranteed that the church would get little or no hearing in the modern age. And it, more and more when I, I'm trying to figure out what the new evangelization means, I've kind of come to this realization, well, what was the old evangelization? It's like, here's the truth, accept it, or you're damned. Oh, okay. Uh, and the... Uh, Okay, uh, could we have some coffee first? Uh, and the new evangelization more trying 
uh, trying to find some points of contact with the world, to, uh, to accept that the world, however lost it may be or incomplete it may be, the world's actually looking for Christ. And you have to kind of meet them where they are. There's, of course, there's always the, the fine line between meeting people where they are and stooping to their level. And if we can say that uh, modernists stooped to their level, uh, the people I'm looking at, I like to see as kind of meeting the world where it is. And so this is the context uh, to understand the historical thought of figures like de Lubac and Danilou. These men were you know, great, great intellects, uh, great in, in the kind of classic uh, humanistic sense. Uh, so being men of very, very broad learning and wide-ranging wide intellect, they chafed under the sterile kind of textbook Thomism of their seminary years. If such thought, uh, the, this type of textbook Thomism, could not nourish the souls of men who had committed their lives to Christ, how could it possibly draw the indifferent or unbelieving into the church? Given the restricted atmosphere of the post-Pashendi seminary, their options were limited. Uh, to study a non-Thomistic scholastic, so we're still doing scholasticism, but just non-Thomistic thinkers like, say, St. Bonaventure, was at the time viewed with suspicion. And indeed, the whole Augustinian tradition, part because of its emphasis on the will as opposed to the intellect, uh, the whole Augustinian tradition was viewed with great suspicion, viewed as uh, the first step on a slippery slope toward fideism. Uh, if our, you know, belief depends upon our will, and the will has power over the intellect, well then, maybe the Protestants are right and that, that faith is just a matter of, of feeling, uh, not a matter of intellect. Still, the church fathers, uh, including Augustine, uh, proved to be the intellectual salvation of de Lubac and Danilou. The fathers were the key for these figures to overcoming the modern split between the spiritual and the, and the intellectual life as well as, ultimately, the modern split between the church and the world. Now, okay, to return to uh, de Lubac, his 1938 work, Catholicism, was the fruit of nearly a decade of instructing priests uh, at the Catholic University of Lyon, and I think that in itself is very revealing. Like I said, I've come to understand Catholic history by actually teaching it. De Lubac was not just kind of an abstract theorist. Uh, he, he taught in seminaries, he trained priests, and his thought really kind of came out of that. Many, many of his writings are really just, uh, he's either a very polished first-time thinker or, or a first-time speaker, or they are kind of rewrite, reworkings of his lectures. You know, they, they are, they are, it's written work, but it was really kind of delivered in an oral setting at first. Catholicism, the book, was a breakthrough work uh, in offering both a new way of understanding the faith and a new apologetic to the modern world. Eschewing the language of Thomism, de Lubac spoke the language of the church fathers in a way that was fresh and new and spoke directly to the challenges of the modern age. De Lubac looked out at a, word characterized, a world characterized by any number of social and intellectual divisions and offered Christ and his church as the source for a longed-for unity. And for our purposes here, I'll focus on his account of the modern dualism, the modern split between time and eternity. Now, circa 1938, one could say that the church had claimed for itself eternity. Uh, eternity, that's our turf. Uh, but only at the risk of conceding time, that is historical change, to the secular world. Dulebach sought to overcome this division through a synthesis that implicitly challenged the conventional Catholic understanding of these distinctions. Again, conventional distinction being truth is timeless 
and really is apart from historical change. Uh, now, de Lubac, again, accept, uh, accepted the condemnation of modernism, never challenged that, but he saw it as really, at best, a defensive measure. Uh, and it should, and he insisted that it couldn't, the condemning modernism could not be, con, should not be confused with offering a real viable uh, synthesis as an alternative. As he says in Catholicism, a reinforced sector of the walls is not a whole city one, which I think is an apt metaphor. It's like, it's good to say no, but that's only gonna get you so far. Um, even as anti-modernist orthodoxy linked Catholic distinctiveness to the affirmation of timeless truth, de Lubach argued that Catholicism distinguished itself most powerfully by its embrace of history, by its historicity. To make his case, de Lubach shifted the battlefield from internal um, church controversies over modernism to the place of the Catholic intellectual tradition in the broader spectrum of world religions. For de Lubach, it was the historical character of Christianity that set it apart from all other religions in the ancient world, again, with the, with the possible exception of Judaism. This is the point that every Christendom student has learned while reading the first volume of Dr. Carroll's History of Christendom. Uh, Dr. Carroll, my sense is that he came uh, by this insight more uh, from his reading of Christopher Dawson than from reading uh, de Lubach, but Dawson himself, I think it's important to see, uh, drew on the church fathers, that he, Dawson, uh, it was part of this patristic revival, I think, that um, was more commonly associated with French figures like de Lubac and Donalou. Uh, any Catholic thinking intelligently and deeply about history at this time is drawing on the fathers. Again, de Lubac's reading of the ancient world following the fathers is, is the following. It says that the ancient pagan world offered two equally ahistorical approaches to the truth. One approach, uh, truth such as it exists, is reflected in the polytheistic cults that rejected historical time for the timeless cycles of nature. So they have a conception of time, it's the natural cycles of nature which just kind of go in circles, much like uh, President O'Donnell mentioned earlier, that kind of that cyclical view of history uh, is reflected in nature. Um, that's one ancient pagan rejection of, of history. The other comes from the philosophical and mystical traditions of the ancient world. Uh, they rejected uh, both nature, both the polytheistic cults and time uh, as both transient. And they rejected them both for an idea of kind of radical transcendence. You know, we need to get out of this world to get to truth. And it's on this issue that de Lubac offers an especially pointed critique of the Greek philosophical tradition, which he links to older Eastern philosophies of mystical escape. And despite variations among these philosophies, they shared two basic assumptions that set them apart from Christianity. Again, to quote from de Lubac, the world from which escape must be sought is meaningless, and the humanity that must be outstripped is without a history. So again, this kind of radical transcendence. Now, it's one thing to distinguish Christianity from Eastern mysticism. It's quite another to distinguish it from Greek philosophy. And in de Lubac's time, as in our own, it's sometimes all too easy for Catholics to uh, conflate or confuse or equate Catholicism and Western civilization. They're not the same thing. Um, the invaluable contribution of Greek thought to the Catholic intellectual tradition has often obscured the significant differences between Greek philosophy and Catholicism. And it is on the point of history and the significance of history that Greek thought and Catholic thought are at odds. Truth exists, the incarnation happened. 
So thundered Warren Carroll, uh, affirming the core principles that guided his Catholic approach to history. Now for a Greek philosopher, however, um, there's a problem with these two statements. Uh, they're incompatible. Greek philosophers would be happy with the first statement, yes, they believe that truth exists, but for them, truth was something that transcended time. The suggestion that truth could exist within time, which is represented by the principle of the incarnation, was for them simply a contradiction. Uh, as every Christendom student learns while reading confessions here in, in the core, the incarnation was the last great stumbling block for St. Augustine, given the influence of Greek philosophy. Um, prior to his conversion, he had immersed himself in the Neoplatonic philosophy of Plotinus, uh, who understood enlightenment, Ms. de Lubach is referring, his characterization of Plotinus is enlightenment as the flight of the alone to the alone. Again, this, this sense of kind of radical transcendence, getting out of the world. Now, when de Lubach's dwelling on this, um, he's not just uh, beating up on, on dead Greek philosophers here. There is a, a kind of a contemporary issue that is at play. His critique of this uh, aspect of Greek philosophy is really directed more at some contemporary theologians. I mean, there's the old saying that uh, the Dominicans kidnap, kidnapped Aristotle for the church. Uh, but there's another equally old saying that goes, Aristotle kidnapped the Dominicans for Greek philosophy. <laughs> and in de Lubach's telling, again, when he's talking about Aristotle, he, he's using Aristotle as a kind of a marker for this idea of truth as set against history. Um, now, the Church Fathers certainly retained a lot of uh, imagery of transcendence from uh, Greek philosophers. I mean, uh, Augustine, again, was very drawn to Plotinus because of this idea of transcendence. But what de Lubach stresses is that they, church fathers, supplemented this story of transcendence with a historical story of, and here's to quote de Lubach, a collective progress from one age to another. So one age to another, progress in time, not just simply vertical ascent. Uh, Lubach writes that the ancient pagan ideal of the harmony of the spheres, again, that, that area of timeless contemplation, gave way to, quote, the providential harmony of history, that well-ordered sequence of laws adjusted to each period. For de Lubach, the historical sensibility of the Church Fathers offered an alternative to both the historical critical method and the dominant Catholic alternative of proof-texting the Bible to affirm doctrinal truth. Throughout his book, de Lubach makes subtle digs at both what he sees as both kind of rationalist approaches. In reading the Bible, the fathers were, according to, to Lubach, neither, quote, giving a commentary on a text or solving a verbal puzzle, but rather they were interpreting a history. And I think especially that notion of solving a verbal puzzle, the idea of reducing uh, sacred scripture to a verbal puzzle that us smart guys are gonna figure out. That kind of uh, attitude uh, de really repulsed de Lubach, but he, can, he saw it among many of his uh, Catholic peers at the time. This history that the fathers were interpreting was, moreover, history characterized by fundamental change. Uh, history isn't just stuff that happened that form a kind of seamless, uh, continuous whole, but history involves change. Pick up a Bible, open up the table of contents. What do you see? A collection of books, divided into two big categories, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, we all take this for granted, right? But 
in, even at this basic level of organization, it reflects a kind of his, the historical nature of Christian thought. Um, there's old and there's new. Does new and improved make old obsolete? These are not just questions for cleaning detergents. You know, they, they are <laughs> they're questions for truth that uh, the fathers struggled with. In a sense, the church fathers had their own version of the historical Jesus. That is, Jesus was not simply the Son of God who plopped down at, a, at one place in time, but Jesus was also the fulfillment of the historical hopes of the people of Israel, a Messiah connected to a specific people through a very uh, long human historical genealogy. Uh, now this fact was potentially scandalous in the ancient world, perhaps as scandalous as uh, modern biblical criticism was to the late 19th and early 20th century. And most of us here, I think, are familiar uh, with the struggles between Jewish and Gentile Christians over the Mosaic Law. But this was part of a larger struggle over the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New. Within the church, Gentiles who accepted that Jesus fulfilled the Old Law still wondered why Christians needed the Hebrew Scriptures. If you have the best, why bother with the rest? Outside the church, critics wondered how anything so new as Christianity could possibly be taken seriously. Both the myths of the Golden Age, that is, there was some Golden Age that we've fallen away from, and the Platonic understanding of ideal timeless forms assumed that purity was to be found in origins, and that later developments were kind of falling away from that original purity. You know, we have some of that in the Christian story. We have Eden, right, but with important differences. Um, again, the biblical story of the fall shares some of this Golden Age uh, idea, uh, except that in Christianity, Jesus, the new Adam, is greater than the old. Um, as Dulubach describes the relationship between the Old Testament and the new, quote, the rough sketch serves as the preparation for the archetype. The imitation comes before the model. So it's just radically flipping uh, the standard kind of Greek distinctions on these points. This is a, a radical reversal of pagan understandings of the relationship between time and truth. Still, de Lubach takes care to distinguish um, this historical dynamism from anything that might, we might interpret as a modern notion of progress. Um, Christ is this fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's not the new and improved Moses. Uh, his newness, his radical newness, does not make the old obsolete. If you've got Jesus, why do you need Moses? Because of the relationship between old and new in Christianity. Um, he has this to say, again, kind of a reflection on um, modern notions of progress, of trying to see the, uh, biblical history as progressive in, in a modern sense. He says, the fathers of the church do not compute the stages and measure the progress of objective revelation. And this is something, uh, kind of a danger even the no, in the notion of development of doctrine, like we're getting better and better all the time. And, you know, Newman was very careful to argue against that, but what you see later in the 20th century is that's how theologians start to interpret things like development of doctrine, like in a kind of Darwinian evolutionary model. So when Dulubach's dealing with this, he's insisting that Jesus is not a new and improved Moses. Old Testament figures are all types of Jesus, and we cannot understand Jesus apart from them. However, 
they are different from Jesus and different from each other. Uh, and this difference is contained within the unity provided by Jesus and his church, but we cannot equate uh, Jesus with any of these figures. That is, you can't level out the, the diversity and difference uh, that exists between Jesus and all of the, the Old Testament types that prefigure him. It's here where de Lubach makes some of his most provocative claims regarding the historicity of the church. Now, no anti-modernist theologian uh, would have objected to biblical typology or denied that change occurred between uh, the Old and New Testaments. Most would, however, have insisted that change came to an end with the biblical revelation of the New Testament. De Lubach took uh, issue with this, arguing that if, if historical change is a biblical principle, then Catholics must incorporate change into their understanding of the church even today. The introduction of Greek philosophy into Catholic thought occurred largely after the first century and invested the writings of the church fathers with a style and character distinct from, say, the letters of St. Paul. But even here, there was no single Greek philosophy. In the West, the Greek tradition remained primarily Platonic until the introduction of Aristotle in the 12th and 13th centuries. And the final incorporation of Aristotle occurred only after a tremendous intellectual struggle in which even some of St. Thomas's writings were condemned as heretical. For de Lubach, the anti-modernist Thomists of his day showed no understanding of their own historicity or of the place or of their own place within the broader Catholic intellectual tradition. Adopting the historical sensibility of the fathers, de Lubach critiques the rigidity of this particular kind of Thomism, insisting that the church, quote, does not share the illusion of some of her children for whom there now remains no more to do. Since the miracle of the past must continue, she believes in fresh providential harmonies for her further expansion. By invoking the notion of fresh providential harmonies, de Lubach opened the door to change in the church. His was, however, a traditionalist understanding of change, one rooted in scripture and the history of the church itself. On the one hand, de Lubach, de Lubach insisted that, quote, fidelity to tradition is never sterile repetition. And he saw the need for, quote, a twofold task of restatement and adaptation. On the other hand, he insisted that any true adaptation uh, must take place within the boundaries of historical and cultural conversion to Jesus Christ. And he writes here, the work of conversion consists fundamentally not in adapting supernatural truth, in bringing it down to human level, but on the contrary, in adapting man to it, raising him up to the truth that rules and judges him. Though bounded by truth, adaptation is still a dynamic process. Um, historically, we do not experience the totality of Christian truth all at once. Each age calls us to encounter and engage different aspects of the truth. Writing in the wake of the condemnation of modernism, de Lubach saw engagement with the truth of the historical diversity of Christian culture as the most pressing theological challenge of 20th century Catholicism. I think much can be said uh, for uh, de Lubach's colleague, Jean Danelou. Uh, after studying um, under de Lubach at the seminary at Lyon, uh, Danelou quickly rose uh, to the status of colleague. He collaborated with uh, de Lubach on many projects and carried on de Lubach's uh, insistence on the uh, importance of a kind of historical sensibility. And I just want to look briefly at one key text uh, from Donalou, his 1953 work, The Lord uh, of History. 
Uh, for Danilu, history is a mystery. Uh, the actual uh, title, the French title of the book is more literally translated as an essay on the mystery of history. Um, so Dulubak, again, is, is open to this sense of mystery, but was concerned in this work um, not so much with the battles over historical criticism, but with helping the church understand where it was in the middle of the 20th century. And I want to touch briefly on the way he looks at how this historical sensibility should shape the Catholic response to the main events of the middle 20th century. And those main events, of course, uh, were uh, World War II and the emergence of the Cold War. Donalu sees the Cold War between the East and the West as in many ways a battle between two visions of history, neither of which were Catholic. Uh, both for, for Dudelbach, both the, you could say, the democratic capitalist West and the communist East had a vision of history as uh, the progressive liberation of man through technical control of nature. And for Dudelbach, both of these views were wrong. And he was really kind of calling on Catholics to develop an alternative, an alternative to both of these views. Uh, he felt that Catholics were in danger of placing their faith in the material achievements of the West, at least Catholics in the West, rather than in Jesus Christ and his church. And in words that uh, should have struck, uh, hit home to American Catholics at the time, Danilu charged that it is the worst kind of pharisaical self-righteousness to regard national success as a mark of God's blessing. Uh, again, uh, de Lubach turned to biblical models to understand our own time. Uh, and what the Bible tells us is that uh, in the history of Israel, that again and again we see attempts at this kind of material self-sufficiency uh, as a kind of prelude to a fall. Um, and so he's calling at this time uh, Christians, particularly in the West, Catholics in the West, uh, to keep that in mind and not align themselves too closely to, uh, to a Western ideal of success. Um, in this, uh, in this respect, Danilu, like many other European Catholics, was much more ambivalent about uh, the Cold War than, say, many American Catholics. The European Catholics felt that they were caught between the two superpowers and were uh, concerned to develop a kind of a third way. And again, just in conclusion, to, to look at one specific way in which Danilu sought to you know, rethink the current moment in which he lived through a Catholic vision of history is that when, when he looked at the third world, now as the, the superpowers look at the third world as their playground, there's this big battle over who's gonna control Asia, African, Latin America, is it gonna be communist or, uh, or capitalist, but both sides really understood the relation to the third world as kind of bringing it up to the standards of either the Soviet East or um, the capitalist American West. Danilu looked at the third world not in terms of material development, but in terms of evangelization and spiritual development. Here too, though, he was concerned that uh, Christian missionaries would, would simply be agents of modernization, you know, coming from the West and trying to transform Asia and Africa into little Americas or new Americas. And drawing on uh, biblical typologies, Danilu challenged his fellow Catholics to look at this in a different way. Um, that rather to see in uh, the third world the possibility of a new Christianity. He writes, uh, each successive Christendom has been only provisional and transitory. That is, we shouldn't assume that the, uh, the models of the past 
uh, as glorious as they uh, were, are going to be models for the future. Um, and insisted that the, kind of the civilizations of the third world had to be Christianized much in the way that Greco-Roman civilization had been uh, Christianized and Germanic medieval civilization had been uh, Christianized by missionaries taking the best of those traditions uh, and bringing them into the faith, incorporating them into the faith. He writes, there is a plain and pressing requirement for a reincarnation of Christianity in the form of these resurgent civilizations, the Oriental, the Near Eastern, the African. In this way alone can the Christian religion take root among the populations. And this, for Danilu, is the stakes of the third world. What is at stake for the third world is not whether it go east or west, but whether or not it come to Christ. And given that concern, Danilu said the most important thing that we need to keep in mind is how we meet them where they are with their cultures and don't try to kind of wipe, wipe out everything traditional in their cultures in the name of supposedly bringing them to Christ. He draws on the biblical model of Pentecost and speaks to the enduring truth that, quote, every race and every tongue gives expression to some irreplaceable aspect of humanity. And the use of the Pentecost metaphor for understanding a historical phenomenon like the Cold War and the, the Third World is just one example of how, for Danilu, sacred history, and this is to quote him, sacred history is not restricted to the contents of the Bible, but is still going on. We are living in sacred history. Um, Danilu here, again, is trying to break down uh, the barrier between sacred and sacred secular history, not just as uh, previously imagined by theologians, but also um, certainly as envisioned by practicing historians. The, uh, the English language edition that I have for this has a little kind of like editor's note. It's just like, uh, just a reminder, the history he's talking about here has nothing to do with real history. You know, it's just a kind of theology of history. So don't worry, you know, it's, it's, this, this could, shouldn't actually shape how we look at real events. But um, as I just mentioned with the example of, of the Cold War, he believed that it should shape how we see real events. Um, you know, he recognized a certain kind of autonomy to uh, professional history, say, but insisted that uh, Catholic biblical typology is a viable organizational structure for doing what, you know, quote unquote, real history. Uh, and this, I think, is uh, certainly very controversial in, among historians today who, uh, who kind of refuse any such uh, typology and still more or less insist that they're just kind of telling us what the sources tell us. But uh, Danilu and Lubach both kind of thought otherwise and thought that uh, the fathers of the church and the, the typologies that they see in the Bible were not simply spiritually edifying, but can be a way of reading the world, a way of reading uh, history. Um, how would this play out? How would history look different? Uh, for them, ultimately, what we should be looking for in history is looking for Jesus Christ, particularly as we see him in the saints. The saints are our guide to history. This doesn't mean you know, kind of pious hagiography or anything like that. I mean, just to take one example, and here I'm extrapolating a bit from them. But 17th century France, if you look at any textbook, even if you look at, at Dr. Carroll's book, the focus is on figures like uh, Cardinal Richelieu and Louis XIV. Well, that's pretty depressing, if you ask me. I never go away feeling good in, uh, in reading about them. But what if 
one were to take other figures like Francis de Sales and St. Vincent de Paul as the center of the history. It's not to ignore Richelieu and uh, Louis XIV, but it's to place them, these kind of great men, political leaders, in the context of saints, rather than just kind of keeping saints on the sidelines and say, well, here's all these bad people, here's what these bad people are doing, and here's some good saints you know, to kind of soften the blow or something, to have, so have saints as types of Christ uh, as the organizing structure for history. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a, a history that uh, is not quite being written yet, uh, but just again in, in conclusion very quickly, uh, so you don't think that these figures are completely uh, out of nowhere. I just want to remind you all that these are, these are the, the men and the type of thought that really did shape the council and shaped John Paul and especially, I think, shaped uh, uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, and, but you know, sadly, again, they remain uh, largely unknown both to Catholics in general and especially to Catholic historians. And I hope that uh, my brief uh, introduction to their work uh, might inspire some of you to seek them out, not simply for their Catholic vision of history, but for their Catholic vision of life. Thank you.